Hi, Sarah. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Um, so today we are lucky enough to have not one, but two psychotherapists in the room. <laughs> Is, um, Alex, <laughs> would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, first of all, thanks for the mm-hmm. invite. Uh, my name's Alex Pierce. I'm a psychotherapist. And we thought it'd be interesting to invite Alex actually on the program today, just as a kind of one-off episode uh, reviewing Velvet Bossa, because uh, th- all three of us really like this film, and we want to kind of compare it to. Actually, it was you, Sarah, who recommended that we think about it alongside. Uh, is it a Jello film from yeah. 1976? Uh, the House with Laughing Windows. The House with Laughing Windows, uh, which is the what thing I just immediately thought of when I saw Velvet Buzzsaw. Yeah, yeah. Um, for a bit of background, how did you guys meet? Well, I met Alex at the Freud Museum. Um, you came to one of my courses there, and uh, it turns out we're both really into film, and we like we're obviously uh, interested in psycho psychoanalysis and psychotherapy. Yeah, so we thought, I, I like doing these review episodes actually, because it's fun to just pick uh, titles that are outside of our planned themes and kind of di- do a deep dive. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> when, <laughs> no pressure, no pressure. Yeah, yeah. Well, a lot of pressure, if you can, if you do a deep dive. <laughs> well, I mean, it just seemed that mm. this film wouldn't possibly fit into any series we could possibly do. Yeah, exactly. So um, it's a nice kind of random episode yeah. of something we'd never really be able to talk about. Yeah, and when I first saw Velvet Bossa appear on Netflix, I thought, ooh, it was kind of intriguing because it is, just to give a bit of background, this is a, um, in terms of genre, it's it's a satirical, supernatural horror thriller film. So it's quite complex in that way, mm-hmm. released actually this year. It came out in 2019. It's... It, it, right away appeared on Netflix as well. So mm-hmm. I don't know if it did have actual uh, distribution in cinemas or not. No, it just feels like a ne- just, it's just a Netflix film. It's just a Netflix film. Now. Okay, okay. It's the new straight to video, isn't it? Yeah. Kind of, yeah, actually. And it's got that sort of that cheapness about it. <laughs> well, <yeah. laughs> but it does. Yeah. I think because there's no... Maybe it's not... It's actually as high production as any other film but mm. when you do get something straight to you without it being in a cinema it mm. does feel like it's more approachable and cheaper yeah 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 absolutely um, i have a synopsis yes let's hear it okay um ooh. the film revolves around several la artwell characters celebrated critic mm. morph gallerist and former punk rodora and josephina an ambitious gallery assistant whose life is not progressing as well as she would hope one night, she discovers the body of her neighbour, a shut-in named Ventral Deese, whose apartment is full of previously undiscovered artworks. Despite instructions that all his work be destroyed upon his death, the characters exhibit and sell the paintings, and Morph begins to research into Deese's life and work. As he uncovers Deese's macabre life story, the people associated with the sale of his work begin to suffer violent art-related deaths. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I want to go. I want to... <laughs> I want to have an art-related death. I think you should have a cinema-related death. Oh, definitely, definitely. I want a cinema-related death. We'll find you just, like, (laughs) strangled in reels of of, of cinema. Oh, my God. It won't be as, like, romantic as that. You'll just trip down the stairs because you're late and it's really dark. That terror. Do you have that terror? It's like yes. Oh yeah. Feeling, feeling forward with each foot down, down the step. No, I don't. Let's talk more about that. that. Yeah. <laughs> but this, yeah, I was really taken taken aback by this film because I just thought I watched it. I didn't know what to expect. Uh, we know what we know of the film just in terms of background. I know that the director Dan Gilroy. He's worked with Jake Gyllenhaal in the past in uh, in the film Nightcrawler. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's there's a sense of continuity there, um, but I really didn't know what to expect. And the first bit of the film feels quite, I don't know. I didn't really. I wasn't sure what what I was getting myself into. It seemed very contrived. Is maybe the word I want to use. Um, but then it, it got good. Mm. It's, it's So if you have not seen this film, you need to pause this episode right now, go watch it and come back because there's going to be spoilers galore. <laughs> yeah, we're not very good at talking around around spoilers. Yeah. Um, so how did you, what did you think of it when you first saw it? And what compelled you to watch it in the first place? 
Um, well, you guys compelled me to watch it. Oh, you hadn't seen it until we told you? No. Mm. no oh. Cool. And I'm super glad you asked me to watch it because I have to confess, if I just checked out the first five minutes yeah. myself, I, I'm not entirely sure I would have persevered. Interesting. Um, but I'm super glad I did. I watched it twice because it is it's totally weird. Mm. Yeah. And it's got like a stellar cast as well. Yeah, amazing um, cast. Yeah, Jake Gyllenhaal, Rene Russo, Tony Collette, uh, Zashton, Tom Sturridge, John Malkovich. I mean, they're all superb. Mm-hmm. And, and crucially, that as far as I can tell, they're all having a massive laugh making this yeah. film. Yeah. That's one of the things I really like. About yeah. It. Yeah, that's what I think what I mean about the, it's not about very clumsily with the word cheapness it's like it's not they're not films that anyone's career really depends on no. or any they're not prestige films they don't have to win anything they just have to be entertaining and I think that kind of gives it a freedom to be better than than a film that's kind of going for awards or a film that's trying to get an Oscar or absolutely you know, yeah it's it's just a, it's just I mean for the director it's just fun but yeah. for us it's something a little bit more because there's there's so much there there's so much there yeah. Do you guys know about Henry Darger? No. Mm, don't think so. Oh, okay. I, li- I like this bit because I get to be smart. Because yeah. I, I, cause at this, from after this point, I'm just going to sit back and you guys are going to be the psychoanalysts. <laughs> and I'm not. I, so this is the only thing I know about. But basically, Henry Darger is like the real life version of Ventral Dece. Ventral Dece. I always think of, I think of it as like blood. Like, I don't know what exactly, but like... I don't know. It sounds like a vein or like a something. Well, just just straight off. Do you know the anagram for vitral D's? No. Do you know it, Alex? No, but I was assuming that there was something. Going oh on. yeah. On, it's it? devil satire. Oh, there uh, you go. Yeah. Yeah. And remember, Rene Russo, when she first discovers the painting in her assistant's apartment, when she walks into the room, she says, "Hell's bells." Oh. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. But yeah, over to you. What you uh. um, so Henry Daja is the basically the real life version of that artist. Mm. Um, uh, he uh, was, and a similar kind of story as well. Like uh, grew up sort of abused and in an orphanage, and became a, and was sort of I think had men- a mental illness. Um, mm. Seemed was I'm um, not necessarily sort of barely literate, but not very educated. Uh, became a janitor for his whole life. He was pretty much kind of look, had to be looked after, like he was like a very vulnerable member of society. And um, he, when he was very, very old and about to die, his he lived in this tiny little one-room apartment in New York. Um, and his neighbours uh, kind of looked in on him sometimes and looked after him when he got ill. And so just before he died, he let them into his apartment and he had just... The whole apartment was filled with it was artworks but also writing he'd written this like 10,000 page book called the Vivian Girls okay and it was just all of this like this fantasy where the where all these children were kind of enslaved by by adults and it was a war of these like child heroes with these sort of these like terrifying adults and he and the girls they're all little little girls called the Vivian girls and they were like the heroes of this world and they all like they didn't have any clothes on they had little penises but they were little girls Um, so I guess maybe he just didn't know that the little girls don't have penises. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and they're so and all of them are kind of like they're they're like a little bit based on um, who's the the baby in the um in the advert who's getting her diaper pulled down. This uh, this advert where it's like a little baby and her diaper's being pulled down by a dog and she's like looking back at the illustrator like. So it's like a weird sexy baby from like the 1940s. So he based them on this, on these like illustrations, these like advertising illustrations of kids. And he's like traced some of them, he's collaged some of them, he's painted some of them. And it's just this huge body of work and it became really collectible and really, really expensive. And you know, these people who, these neighbors of his just made a fortune. And uh, yeah, so he's sort of like the, the poster boy for outsider artists. Basically, no training, no mentorship, no real, not 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 really any kind of community or communication with the outside world. At some like he spent a lot of his life trying to adopt children and not being allowed to, uh, like probably quite <laughs> thankfully. Oh my god! Yeah, a, a good decision. Um, the copper tone baby. The copper tone yeah, baby. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, have you seen the copper tone baby? It's creepy. Yeah, that's super creepy. 
Yeah. Not um, as creepy as the Evian. Yeah, I suppose oh, not. Yeah. yeah, that is true. Well, just babies in general are pretty creepy. <laughs> we'll, I'll, we'll go into that another time. Um, but um, but there's a documentary mm. about him called uh, In the Realm of the Unreal. Oh my god! And it's a super creepy documentary because it's got children's voices narrating the story. And and I don't think it was intended to be a super creepy documentary. I think it's intended to be like quite a sweet, you know, a sweet story. But there's so much, there's so many elements of horror in the life of Henry yeah. Darger that no one really talks about because he's, you know, like because people, you know, people study his work and it's worth so much and he's thought of as a great artist. But there's so much of hor- mm. of horror in there. And so it just seems like, and that must be the inspiration for this film, even yeah. though it's not really credited that must be what this film is about so it's nice to see that someone else heard that story thought it was really creepy and decided to make it into a horror story oh my god that's so fascinating yeah i want to watch this documentary this documentary in the realm of the unreal yeah you should watch it it's really great i would i would recommend it sounds good it's and the work is and the work is really beautiful Mm. um even but it's it's disturbing as well because i don't know i think he just kind of maybe stayed in the sort of a semi-childlike state for a long time, and that was who he really identified with, children. So he made this book about mm. child heroes, basically. Incredible. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting, because the whole time when I was watching it, I didn't know whether it was supposed to be like a, I don't know, like a kind of uh, indictment of the um art world Mm -hmm. you know um and a lot of it is that actually but there is also an undeniable element of like suffering there There, it's almost trying to juxtapose the suffering of an artist the hellish i guess the hellish experience of having to create and that Mm -hmm. whole process how that relates to this very commercial world uh, you know, people buying and selling this whole industry, ex- exhibitions, uh, ex- ex- uh, exclusive deals. It's almost as if the director was kind of found real true horror mm-hmm. and then more manageable horror and focus more on that. Wow. And that's the thing. I feel a little bit, I feel a little bit, dis- I not disappointed. I love the film. I had a great time watching it. But I felt like we didn't get enough of the horror of the art itself, you know, the um, Deese's art and Deese's life every time we were kind of getting into that we got taken out and uh, of it and the way that all the characters die they are all killed by other people's other pieces of art mm. it's not to do with the you know the his work as a, as a dangerous yeah. thing and I thought that was maybe a bit of a misstep but I think it's just that he could he felt that there was something horrifying about artists that are like that artists that are so dedicated and so obsessive but didn't get quite close enough to how mm. to the horror of that and decided to focus instead on the horror of commerce and capitalism and popularity contests and um, hype, I suppose. I don't well, know. Focuses on the morph character. Well, yeah. Because when you mentioned suffering, I was thinking most of the suffering that you see, obviously you get the backstory of the artist, but most of the suffering you see on the screen is this morph suffering as he sort of slides into you know some kind of breakdown that he's having mm. and that, yeah. just just to sort of jump ahead to the next film before we get there that was one sort of structural similarity I saw which is both films are structure around a, a sort of doubling mm. of an artist and a critic or restorer mm-hmm. so it's like in, in both movies the filmmakers chosen not to go straight for the art mm but it's sort of split it in two, as if it's not possible wow. to speak of it directly, as if there's something unrepresentable about the horror. That's mm. super interesting. Yeah. yeah. That's so true. Um, I suppose, yeah, that is really true. And I guess that it is, mm. um, it is so kind of unrepresentable, even in the sense that you only get flashes on screen of, in both those films, you only get real like flashes on screen of the work itself. And it's That's good. Right. It's like it's. I guess because if you look at it too closely, if you look at any artwork too closely, but especially artwork that's you're being told is this is this masterful piece of work, you can't look at it too much on screen. In case it's not a masterful piece of work, because yeah. obviously it's work that's been designed for this film. So I suppose it's just that it's also just that technical impossibility of just of showing you have given you an experience of great terror, like terrifyingly great art. Yeah. 
yeah. that you don't you just don't get to look at it long enough. So maybe that is why you have you have to look at all of this other more kind of swallowable, manageable. But also the morph character fascinates me because it's like he keeps trying to I don't know prove to others, but maybe also to himself that um, that he's trying to do meaningful work in a very shallow industry. So mm-hmm. he, there's there's one line where he says. Um, I further the the medium that yeah, I yeah. analyze or something and like there's, that. There's a few like that, and I assess out of adoration. Yes. Totally weird. Totally weird. Totally <laughs> <laughs> amazing, but weird. Yeah, yeah. He keeps talking about spirits and almost like um, trying to tap into some entity, you know, some mm. spirit that moved the artist to represent something of almost from the real, you know, almost mm. unrepresentable, and. He wants he wants to access that somehow through his assessment, um, and it it becomes completely maddening. And the the bit where he's tortured in that kind of uh, sound space, mm-hmm. that was so interesting because he's haunted and like confronted with his own reviews and and assessments of other people's art, and he's completely tortured by that. Um, he that becomes a kind of torture device ultimately for himself because he has not been able to access something beyond it speaks to something else I was thinking about this morph characters right from the beginning mm. what seems clear is that you know here is someone who has no notion or interest in the unconscious he's absolutely flat and two dimensional like witness this yeah. kind of like hilariously instant judgments that he makes of art you know he, he looks at it for three seconds and goes oh it's alright it's amazing it's wonderful mm-hmm. it's the worst there's, there's no pause there's no space there's no slowing down it's just instant and the other bit that made me laugh is that when he starts having hallucinations mm-hmm. and he's hallucinating things so what does he do he goes to the optician <laughs> <laughs> if you're seeing things would you go to the yeah. optician yeah that's <laughs> true it's true and then brilliantly the optician says your eyesight's got better since you were <laughs> so in this character, which I'm sure is very typical, I think that's the point they're trying to make about this kind of scene and that kind of place, is that it's completely flat. Yeah. There's, there's no depth. There's Everything no depth. Everything is instant. And that's the kind of genius of the film, I think, because as you were speaking about this scene in the room, you know, yeah. the real returns. The real returns. <laughs> you know, it comes back uh, in the real yeah. and not in fantasy. But Super interesting. Yeah, but that happens also to Rodora, who started out her life um, as a youngster being in a punk band. Mm-hmm. And the name of her band was Velvet Buzzsaw. She got this tattooed on her on her back or on her shoulder. Mm. And just like crucial it's a punk band as well. Yeah. Punk music is the music of like pure drive. Yeah. <laughs> you know, pure it's, aggression. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sorry, and do, and do, and doing it yourself, you know, mm. not asking exactly. for permission, Absolutely. not caring who, yeah. what anybody else thinks. You're doing it and that's that's the value. There's value in that. Yeah. Whereas now this the, the realm she's moved into, it's all facade and she even says we're peddling mm. we're peddling image. It's as flimsy as a bubble, you know? Yeah. There's nothing here actually. It's like the stock market. We're just and we're hoping and 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 kind of speculating and investing on on people's belief of what might this be we're tr- we're trying to construct a landscape where that what people think matters not the actual object value itself and this ultimately comes back and always returns uh, and tortures them um i really like that and i like the fact that there is this kind of faustian element to the structure of the story if we accept that vetral dies is an anagram for devil satire it's this whole business of um, you know, when Josefina is the one who discovers all this art and Rodora gets wind of that, she says, oh, you know, well, you're going to have to entrust me to get involved and I can make you rich, you know, you can't do it by yourself. Sure enough, that's what happens. It's this Faustian pact with the devil that um, you're kind of selling your soul here, mm-hmm. you know, you're, ju- you're just after fame and the superficial trappings of that industry. It has nothing to do with the quality of the work, which is interesting also because there's some other characters, like some per- peripheral characters there who 
um, further kind of amplify these messages like the museum workers and they are not as taken in <laughs> they're kind of they're a little bit more critical of all this business and and then there's the artist um, played by John Malkovich this is an interesting kind of observation about how all the money people need the museum to provide them with a kind of validity and gravitas a sort of superficial gravitas mm. yeah I mean that's I think that's a fair observation. Absolutely. Yeah. What do you think it says? Because I found uh, out of all the characters, uh, Josephina just the most bizarre. Like I thought it was a really bizarre performance, um, but which was one that I liked more the more I watched it. But what does it say that she is the only character who be- has to become art? Like you oh, know, yeah. in the end, like everyone else gets everyone else gets sort of sliced apart, and you know all these horrible, violent deaths, but she just gets absorbed into like this hated because she says something horrible about graffiti just before it happens she says something sort of uh, denigrating about you know you want to spend all your life in in this in this graffiti gallery and then she that's that's how she ends up which i thought was actually a a suitably creepy death it kind of reminded me of that thing in the witches yeah where the child gets stuck in the painting for the and grows old in the painting and then dies and it which really scared me as a child yeah. But what I just I'm what do you, I'm really t- I'm interested in what you guys think of that of mm. her character and why she has a different death to everyone else and what kind of role she plays in that film because she is very she's very like she's very kind of she's sort of just pure image yeah. really she wears all the best clothes and she has all these like, beautifully coloured uh, like even pajamas and her coats and every to every scene she's wearing a different amazing outfit. And she she comes across initially as um, an assistant to, to Rodora. Rodora mm-hmm. says that she, there's some remark made about how Josefina had these ambitions and great visions of what she was going to achieve, and that she was Rodora's protege. Mm-hmm. And but then she ends up trapped in a graffiti. Mm. I guess she's the only character that we see mm. undergoing a process in the film, in that. There's the older generation who it's made clear have already sold out mm-hmm. and then there's the younger generation like Morph who clearly have never had any notion of kind of authenticity but she kind of goes from one to the other Would that yeah be fair to say? yeah mm-hmm. although maybe she's doesn't you know maybe she sold out from the beginning I don't know but she is she's a weird she is a, she is a kind of unique character out of all of them um, because even the way she describes like you know like the, the the one kill scene that was to me the most outrageous one is the Tony Collette uh, yeah, one. Best one. Oh, it's oh my god, it's so good. And the fact that people, you know, she's laying dead in her own in a pool of her own blood, and everybody thought it was part of the exhibition. Yeah, the thing with the kids coming. And the kids. <laughs> That was really good. But the way that Josefina relays that incident is fascinating mm. because she's so, again, it's, there's this detachment. It's almost like she's this otherworldly, like, kind of not quite connected to reality or something. And she's, like, relaying all this to uh, Rodora on the phone. But in the same breath, she talks about how they're blowing up on Instagram and Twitter and, like, they're trending and we're a hit. Mm. And, all the, and it's like... It's fascinating to me how it, there's this, this ruthlessness there. She's, yeah. got, she's got my favourite line in the whole movie, which is when she's having the row with Morph. They thought they had something or didn't have something. And, and he says, say we don't share something real. And she says, I was never particularly upset. <laughs> amazing put down. I love Weird that. Weird and amazing put down. Where does that come from? What does that mean? I don't it's, know. It's, but that it kind of sounds like a summer a summary of her attitude to life in general. You know, she's like I feel like she's sort of the least touched out of everyone. As if like her version of falling in love but being obsessed. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. Um yeah. That's a great line. It's so funny. I suppose that is true because she does kind of measure love by how trending people are you know how <laughs> but it's true because you know she goes she leaves more for someone more you know who's blowing up more, yeah who's more popular more up and coming more up and coming um, that's so true yeah but then it is her who spots the artwork and sees what's in it but it's still she still doesn't seem to sort of react very much to it she just can sort of see its its value without really being very oh moved by God. it that reminds me so much of um recently i was following some 
makeup artist drama on, on YouTube. <laughs> yeah, um, and and there's a guy on there who was saying, in all seriousness, uh, he's a makeup artist, and he has he's got like something like 15 million followers on Instagram, and he was saying how he would never date anyone that doesn't at least have a million followers because then you know they're chasing clout. Interesting. And but he was saying it completely unironically. Like for him, that was you know he was like anyone with less than a million followers. You know, um, I'm very suspicious of that. You know, I don't know what their motives are. And it's like, oh wow, like that's interesting. You know, oh, that so you don't have social media at all. <laughs> Do you feel attacked? Uh, like for this guy, it must be some kind of mystical half being. Yeah. He probably can't even see you. <laughs> it's amazing to me because. I have a YouTube channel and have no interest whatsoever in doing clickbait or making videos for views. Like I just find uh, making little montages therapeutic for myself and then I upload them. More as a kind of place to track them. Well, before social media, that's what art used to be. Yeah. Making, like creativity used to be. Like back in the 90s, people just had hobbies. <laughs> and now that you can't have that, you have to, your hobbies have to have, have to have followers. Otherwise, what's the point in like existing? Exactly. Actually, kind of um, Gus Van Sant predicted that, didn't he, with Nicole Kidman in To Die For? She says, uh, she says, I know I want to be on TV because what's the point of doing anything if people aren't around to see it? And yet, isn't it a, a bit of a, a challenge to the kind of follower obsession? Because it's made clear that this morph character has real power. Yes. In a kind of old-fashioned. Yeah, sense he is old-fashioned. A powerful critic. Which is kind of old school, right? Yeah, you're completely right. It is. Um, I suppose there is that dynamic in the world of how the sort of the powers that be utilize the young and digital technologies to to basically keep the same structures that always were. You know, even if you think that you uh, you have like a new dem democratic power, you're still to a, a, in a sense kind of working for the same for the same people who are maybe just kind of stepping back and letting you do it. But, but it's so fascinating because, mm. I mean, it's basically a film asking questions about authority, like physical yeah. authority mm. and so on. But it's also a film about, like, the ultimate authority from the psychoanalytic perspective, you know, the authority of the unconscious, yeah. like the superego, you know. The... Is that what Dees represents then in this film, the super, the, the unconscious, the, the things that we don't want to think about? Yeah, aggressive impulses and drives and, like, trauma as well. well just as a simple sort of observation of what happens in the film it's only Deez's art that makes people stop and do that thing where people go hmm, mm. I'm not quite sure there's something there but I can't quite put my finger on it I don't know what I'm looking at exactly exactly yeah it's his art that makes people do what I think we would consider is the normal thing to do when you're confronted with an aesthetic mm. object you're right, like his, Vettel de Cesard is the only thing in this very bland, predictable world, mm. uh, very formulaic world. It's the only thing that um, has seems to have the same function as the dream, where we relay our dream and it's nonsensical. Mm. But we're also strangely compelled by it, like we can't stop searching for meaning. It uh, infuriates us but it also deeply attracts us, you know? And there's something alive about that. There's something dynamic and animating about that in the same way and that- disturbing. And disturbing, yeah, yeah, like it's petrifying. Um, there's the, the, there's a moment where, I think it's a graffiti artist who just like can't stop staring and he says, if you look at this painting long, long enough, it moves, it's alive, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And, but Josefina seems almost one of the few people who, I mean, she recognizes the value yeah, of she's it. She's kind of impervious. Yeah. But can I just say my second favorite line in the film goes to Morph when he first sees Deez's work and he looks at it and he says, they're visionary, I'm ensorcelled. Oh yes. And I had, to, I, had to stop, I had to stop it and rewind it and play it again. I was like, ensorcelled? Is, is that a word? And I had to look it up. That's the kind of genius of this film. It has these kind of like what does it mean? Being it's like bewitched. Exactly, yeah, as in sorcerer. Oh, okay. Yeah. But like, who, who says I'm a sorcerer? <laughs> yeah. But that kind of, for me, that sort of signified the sort of mangling of, you know, of these two approaches. Mm. The, the totally superficial, two-dimensional thing and, you know, 
the acceptance of fantasy in the unconscious when you mm. look at the aesthetic object. Mm. And that kind of crushing of those two worlds, for me, is summed up perfectly in this choice of this weird word, in sourcehood. But also the fact that John Malkovich's character, you know, he being an artist himself, he says some really interesting things about his process. So like when he um, introduces his new dealer or representative, is it Don Don? Mm-hmm. John Don Don. John Don Don, yeah. <laughs> It's a very fun name to say. Yeah. Is that does he have a South African accent? I was trying yeah. to place his accent, yeah. So they're walking through his studio and then on the first floor, uh, John Don Don says, Oh, so this is where all the magic happens. Again, there's all this stuff with magic and hell and, and you know, sorcery and all this stuff. And then he says, No, this we just this is we just do reprints here. Mm. So it, it became very interesting, um, almost like Walter Benjamin kind of <laughs> vibes about, re, you know, re- reproduction and the value of art and repetition. And it's a bit of a Damien Hirst character. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And then when they go upstairs, I, I, again, this is why this film is kind of so disconcerting, because I could never work out if it was trying to say something, if it was doing something really clever, mm. deliberately or by mistake. You know, they go upstairs and he's only got one work of art that he's done. But he's also got a basketball net and mm. a big thing of basketballs and he's shooting hoops. And I thought, well, that is precisely what you, that's the kind of thing you expect to see in, in tape or something mm. like that, you know, participatory art. So it's like, I think in the film it's supposed to be there to show his complete um, disinterest yeah. in making art. He's just killing sure, time, yeah, shooting yeah. hoops. But, that's, but that precisely that's, is that's the, the type of... Installation. <laughs> in a bare room and exactly. it's just that one everyone's, element everyone's and anyone that's so true and yet that for him represents it's a torture device because it's a signifier that he's bored out of his mind and he can't actually work he's got no ideas he says something about this is a slaughterhouse ideas um <clears throat> don't fully form this is where ideas come to kill themselves mm-hmm. or something it's like whoa you know it's very it's very graphic um, horror imagery. I thought it was interesting that there's only three three characters that don't get killed yes. by the art, and it's Piers, and it's Damrish, the graffiti artist, and Coco. Coco. Mm. We talk about Coco, Coco. who just keeps finding bodies. <laughs> we need to talk about Coco. <laughs> oh, Coco. Coco from Michigan. Mm. <laughs> so brilliant. Yeah, I loved I loved the scene. Look, juxtaposes so brilliantly uh, a psychotic relation to reality and a normal relation to reality. It's the bit when they're looking out over the city, it's Coco and Morph. Mm -hmm. And um, Morph is talking about his kind of paranoid delusion. I I forget. He's talking about the violation of inviolate rules. And then Coco is trying to talk about how if she doesn't get a job, she'll have to go back to Michigan. Mm such a brilliant, funny juxtaposition of the things that well people worry about and the things that insane people worry yeah. about. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, that's Coco's, so true. Coco's brilliant. She is really good. There is a lot of those, um, those com- that sort of, di- that technique of dialogue in this yeah. film, like two people having completely different conversations. It happens all mm, the way through. Um, it happens when Josephina and Morph first sit down together and she's freaking out about a, the, her boyfriend who's cheated on her and he's trying to ask her out and yeah, they're just talking yeah. about completely different things. And they do that throughout the course of their relationship. Everyone does that, has conversations with each other that are they're, they're kind of just like passing each other rather than yeah. actually really understanding each other. But that, the question of sexuality is, is right in the middle of the film, I mm. think. Mm. And I think it's important and interesting that Morph is bisexual. Yes. Right? There's, there's something there's something happening there. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, you know, it's something to do with his refusal of the unconscious. It's got something connected mm. to do with his bisexuality. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the way that, as you mentioned before, Mary, he's, he's completely obsessive about asserting that what he's doing has some higher purpose and I thought it was super interesting that the thing what triggers his descent into full-blown madness 
is when he realises that his so-called higher purpose has been sexualized from two oh, wow. directions, from a heterosexual and a homosexual perspective. He finds out that his male lover was swindling him and then he gets rejected by his female lover. Mm-hmm. There's a betrayal because she yeah. goes out with somebody else. Yeah, and she's also used him to do that um, assassination with you. Mm-hmm. That's so true. And it's that wow. that kind of triggers this kind of uh, regressive process where he moves back from sort of critique to hallucination. And I think it was, you know, Freud said something about how when people invest in sort of higher social functions, like being an art critic, that that's basically a sublimation of incestuous homosexual libido. Mm-hmm. And Freud says something, I think it's in the Schraper case, he says that psychotics are often triggered by some kind of insult you know, to their higher social function. Mm. And this is what happens. Mm. This is what happens with more. Yeah. Does that make sense? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Because now that you're saying that, it actually just casts some light to, for me on his kill scene. Because... Totally. Right? Totally sexualized. Isn't yeah, it? it's completely sexualized. And it's initially the robot that he sees at whatever that was, that art fair. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like Freeze or something. Um, but he, in that scene, in that initial scene, he's kind of like looking down on that in a like, you know, negative sense, like kind of dismissing that artwork, uh, like a kind of rejection, right? Mm-hmm. And, but the lines from that robot are interesting. And, and the way he sort of, pins him up against exactly and like snaps his neck yeah kind of weird violent erotic yes vibrates. yeah it was eroticized yeah. but also the fact that that robot was wearing it was kind of like a <laughs> the, the outfit was interesting too because it, it looked like you know it kind of looked like those old um i don't know if there were like wartime propaganda posters from the okay. states yeah. and like it was the uncle sam kind of representation of america you know, I want you to fight for the army or something. And it had like the kind of um, signifiers of the American flag. But this robot was wearing that, but it was all in tatters. And it, it was all like, it looked like a hobo. Mm. I mean, it was called a hobo, right? Yes, yeah. And to me, that just makes me think of reference to the broken American dream or something, or the American industry. Uh, as a dream potentially for people that you can realize your greatest dreams if you just work hard enough no matter what your background is and you can find success mm. but in the end um, for example the American dream as represented by Damrish exactly exactly yeah. whereas he, Damrish is so interesting because he's coming out of something so much more like um, authentic it's like an art collective mm. Um, and there is no, there, there are no kind of commercial aspirations there. Mm. They're just doing it for the sake of it and they don't care. Um, I think it's about authenticity. Yes. I think it's also about sexuality. Yes. You would say that. I would say that. <laughs> yeah. so, it's, it's so predictable. But yeah. know, my observation is that the three people who don't get killed by the art are peers. Yeah who we're led to believe does have some sort of scrap of authenticity left. Mm-hmm. left. Um, it's Damrish who, in a crucial scene, I think, when they're in that kind of dive bar, yeah. um, he says to Josephine, he says, I'm not interested, and gives her a kiss on the forehead, <laughs> as if to say, my art and my sexuality mm. are healthily separated. Wow. They're not the same thing. And the other one who doesn't succumb, of course, is Coco, who's, as far as I can tell, is a virgin. She's presented as the virginal one. You know, the the outfits that she wears and the big glasses and the kind of innocent... She's young and... Yeah, yeah, I think the suggestion is she doesn't know about sex. Okay. Is she not the one who delivers the news about Josephina's cheating boyfriend in the first scene? 
yes, as well. Yes, she's the one who calls. So it's not necessarily she doesn't know so much about sex, just that she, but she also she's she does something that probably no one else in that world would, which is give call up her friend and give her a heads up that she's not being she's her, she's being treated in a sexually not a moral pl- way. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. suppose. And doesn't use that knowledge to her own benefit. Exactly. Some kind of cynical fashion. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. But actually, it makes sense that she is a kind of version in the psychoanalytic sense of the sexuality not being fully submerged into the identity because she keeps finding the bodies, right? Every single time there's a kill scene, we find out through Coco. So for me, that I can't help but think, following on from your uh, analysis there, that maybe it's the primal scene. It's always the virgin who has that toughest time with the primal scene. Because it's always the, the they're always the one who finds that scene uh, traumatic, mm. and they they can't cope. And that's what's so I think so interesting about that structural separation between morph and what's the name of the artist? The, oh, the, um, the, uh, but the the deceased artist, yeah. uh, Dees. Yeah, Dees. That's mm. so interesting throughout the primal scene because it's made clear that Dees has experienced. Exactly. Dark Mm. and terrible. And the assumption is that Morph has two, and that's what's returning. Yeah, he suppressed it. In the real, in his hallucinations, in his psychosis, in that amazing scene in the soundproof room. Oh my god, I love that scene. Where, you know, the everything that he's everything that he's levelled at other people comes back comes back to him. Oh, guys, you've really, oh, yeah. like, opened up the film for me. It's been great. Um, I've also just, like, I think that I just kind of watched it as just a, an avid consumer. Mm. And you've kind of explained to me why I can't have everything I want, which was <laughs> I just wanted which was I wanted to be able to see the unseeable all the time and have the inexpressible expressed to me. And I felt like I, I just wanted to tear the film apart to get more of it. Mm. Um, but I can't. I guess that aligns me a little bit with morph i guess it aligns audiences with morph like you know he's like the audience trying to have it's trying to kind of like bring which i think audiences do sometimes try to kind of bring a film to earth so that they can they're trying to exert control and exert control over it exert Um, control over the unknowable mm -hmm. or unspeakable but do it in such a kind of focused way uh, in such a systematic way that it becomes their whole career, mm. you know, and that becomes their ambition in life. Yeah, and that's how they deny the horror of the unknown. Mm. But that's the tragedy of Morph, isn't it? Is that everyone else is cynical, but he genuinely believes yeah. because he doesn't have, he yeah. literally doesn't have some capacity to to even be cynical because that <laughs> sort of suggests that you know what's going on. Yeah. Mm. You know, that, he's a kind of tragic figure. He's almost kind of his that psychic structure prevents him from having that kind of double perspective. Mm. And you know that's a, a psychotic structure. You know he, he can't distinguish fantasy from reality. Yeah. And that's 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 what happens to him. That's so true because Rodora is the real cynic there. All yeah. the times that Morph tried to warn her, she just like laughed it off. And he said, look, I'm willing to um, even jeopardize or risk my whole career on this and let the world know what's happening with these paintings. Mm-hmm. I don't care what happens to me. And then he goes ahead and publish, publishes it and it causes an earthquake in the art world. But he really doesn't care anymore. He's crossed the line mm-hmm. because he is like a believer. He is that tragic character, whereas she still won't believe it until it's happening to her personally. Like Rodora is that... It's amazing that she's gone on that journey to that level of cynicism, given that she came from punk. Mm. Mm. <laughs> you know, like that's the real um, sadness of her, I guess, downfall in this, in that sense, from authenticity to this place where she's like on in, in the, wherever she is in Calabasas, by the looks of it, this incredible mm. house in the hills. Yeah. She has the coolest downfall, though, doesn't she? Yeah, hers is the best downfall. Yeah. Um, oh my god, that scene where the the doubling of the, the painting that really freaked me out. You know when she's sitting on her on her, on the floor, yeah. on she's she, she's like on her outside, and she's sort of like hugging her knees, and her cat comes and sits next to her. It's the exact double 
It's literally the replicate of the painting that was hanging in her bedroom ah, that she had to turn around. Well spotted. Yeah, it's literally the same. I'm going to try and find it to show you. <laughs> in that sense, I guess I find Josephina's story quite tragic as well. Just yeah. thinking about what you said about people, their sexual identity isn't sort of separate enough from their other identities. I suppose that's the thing about her, that her it's all through the film she has a boyfriend you know she has she like her is pretty much like her sex life that propels that she uses to kind of propel herself around and but does sort of propel her story yeah a little bit so i find that that's just kind of it's sort of the most tragic that yeah. when she kind of gets dumped in this bar and then can't get home and then that's sort of the moment where where it happens to her where she kind of can't hide behind these like sexual partners anymore exactly what did you guys think of the final scene with the credits where John Malkovich's character is like drawing Becoming circle. unstuck. Yeah. yeah. On the beach. Yeah. Yeah, uh, baffled, I think, to be honest. Mm. Yeah. What did you make of it? I thought it was kind of like a perfect ending because he's getting lost and immersed in the creative process, even though it's just getting washed away. And he's also, he's also back on the juice as well, isn't he? Oh, he is great, drinking again. There's that great scene where he, he sees Deezer's painting and the, the waiter comes by with a tray of drinks and he just takes it. Yeah. Yeah, that's but actually with, uh, But the other guy, the, what's he called? Is he, what's the other artist's name? Damrish is also smoking, uh, like smoking a joint at that moment or something. I think like they're both, they're both like on their drug of choice yeah, um, yeah. at that moment. So shall we move on to briefly the House of the Laughing Windows? Yeah, House of the Laughing Windows. Mm. Shall I do the synopsis? Yes, absolutely. Okay, uh, conservator Stefan arrives in a small Italian village where he has been employed to restore a fresco depicting the violent death of Saint Sebastian. As he works on the painting, he learns piece by piece the story of its deceased creator, a troubled artist who went to extreme lengths to paint the agony of death. Oh, amazing. Mm. I mean, there's a lot more. There's a lot it's more. It's very Italian. There's a lot, <laughs> lot of things happening in this film. He has lots of girlfriends and and lots of other things happen, but this is the basic gist of the plot. Yeah, mm-hmm. so he's commissioned to save this controversial mural. Yes. Uh, located in the church. Uh, and there's a whole kind of backstory with, with this place. And it's this isolated village, mm-hmm. right? There's not a lot of people living there. Yeah, it's there. sort of folk horror. Folk horror. It, you get yeah, the sense that's so like, true. You know, the yeah. community is kind of in, the community is sort of all conspiring to keep this story from him. But people people keep sort of breaking away and telling him bits of, or sort of warning him or trying to tell him the story. Mm. And, then, and then he finally learns it. So, yeah, what did you think? Like, what, because I just felt like watching it, um, I got more out of it having watched it alongside this film, actually, mm. than maybe I would have done if I'd just seen it in isolation. Yeah, I think that I thought of it when I, the first time I watched Velvet yeah. Buzzsaw because it, it felt like it gave me the things that I was looking for mm. in Velvet Buzzsaw. Um, the sort of just like the cheap thrills really of like of real horror even just those opening credits where you get those like mm. those the opening credits are yeah. kind of the best bit like they're sort of <laughs> like yeah. I would just watch that I would maybe just recommend to watch the opening credits because there's a film it's like quite meandering mm. and sort of doesn't always make sense but the opening credits are exactly what I wanted from Velvet Buzzsaw basically that just like chilling like you know scene of, of like torture and this like guy's scary voiceover um, but yeah, what did you guys think about? Yeah, I enjoyed it. Yeah, I thought it. I, I thought it was a difficult film. Mm. Mm-hmm. So I couldn't work it out the first time round. Um, I still can't quite work out the laughing windows in the house. I mm-hmm. don't know. You're the sort of jello connoisseur. I don't know. I don't. I don't. Makes any sense to you. It doesn't really. I mean, jellos just traditionally have these really weird long names, and I don't know why. I think it's just like a sort of a bit traditional. Um, but the laughing window I don't know I found that his rea- I, the thing I find really interesting in the film is his is him as a character Stefan who is sort of like mm-hmm. not an artist but the you know <clears throat> the that's that sort of morph character I suppose of not an actual creator but sort of mm-hmm. creator adjacent um, it's his uh, reaction to the house a little bit you know because when yeah. he goes he's sort of seen he's, he's they show him these body parts and these you know, skeletons in the ground but when he walks around to the other side and he sees the paintings of the laughing you know this these like mouths on the windows which are the work of this artist he just it seems like he has this moment of just forgetting the it's danger he's in yeah. yeah 
and he's sort of he's like he he keeps having that he keeps having this like sort of these like moments of joy during like quite violent things during looking upon quite violent art yeah and he has yeah, that again true. and it's this actually I mean it's like it's a really dangerous place it's got you know it's this this place where these you know where you know ostensibly like you know this, this like strange sort of semi incestuous family lived and mm-hmm. tortured people. But he's just really, for a second, just really charmed by it. That's the thing with folk horror, though, isn't it? If the mm. protagonist realised how weird the place was when they arrived, yeah. they'd get out straight away. Yeah, yeah. Movie. Yeah, exactly. But, yeah, he's got this strange, he's got this deadpan vibe about mm. him. I particularly noticed it when he gets the phone calls of the weird, with the weird voices. Mm. So it's like, you know, he gets this phone call out of the blue with this weird ghost-like voice telling him to leave, telling him to go. And then he hangs up the phone and it's just like nothing happened to him. Well, the thing that makes... And he's kicked out, so he's yeah. kicked out of his hotel room. He yeah. comes back and, and, and the woman says, oh, sorry, one of our good customers came. We, we're kicking you out. And he's like, oh, OK. Yeah. Like, what is wrong with this <laughs> Where is he? I think if he just... If he had any more sort of... Um, if if he just was a bit more on his feet, then you wouldn't have a, you wouldn't have a film, mm. I suppose, because it's such a loosely like put together film. <laughs> but the thing that makes me laugh about that phone, that sort of I noticed about that phone call scene is that he listens to the voice for a little while. He doesn't try and say anything back to it, and then he doesn't just hang up the phone. He like looks at the phone, like as if like that's the problem, <gasps> you know, as if like he could tell something from that rather than like trying. You know, he like takes his ear away from it. He doesn't try and speak, but he just looks at the phone for a little while before he hangs it up. Yeah. Um, the, the the connecting tissue between the two films is really this business of art linked with trauma and mm-hmm. how the, the restoration project is connected with, is it San Sebastian? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. So, and that in, is, is interesting in itself um, in terms of uh, representing someone being tortured. Mm. Um, and it, it, he's a gay icon. Apparently. It's a gay icon. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. Uh, I mean, I was doing some uh, internet trawling, trying to work out what the hell this film was <laughs> about. One article mentioned about how the the painting, the fresco in the film, mm. is slightly off center because it portrays the two women, the saints, mm. torturing San Sebastian, whereas normally oh my God. the saints minister to his wounds that have been inflicted by the soldiers or whatever the Romans. Wow. So there's a weird play there. So kind of subverting they should be saints sh- tending his, his But they're devils. But they're the devils inflicting the wounds. Oh my God. Which goes all the way back to the biography that we're given Absolutely. Of, of the artist. Of his sisters. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Well there is um there is sort oh, of wow. this like there is just this turn of tendency in um Italian horror films mm. to associate murder like death and sex a lot or like especially lack of sex with with murder you had that in a we did blood and black lace for one of our fashion films episodes yeah and there was that um there was like a, there's like one character that just can't like he just can't get any women and he's like a suspect for a really long time and that's then the policeman says something about how he's like psychotic he can't get he can't get a date basically what, what i love about that i love the policeman in that movie because he's like Someone's killing women. Uh, we don't know who it is, so we're just going to arrest all of them. Now. Yes, yeah. Because <laughs> let's face it, they're all capable of yeah. it. It's so brilliant. For one of the better plan, we'll just arrest every man. We need that guy to go well, to LA. Actually, you know you what? Know? Yeah, that's, that's like a perfectly reasonable plan. Like, there's uh, one of like one of like the most horrifying sort of facts in true crime for me is when uh, you know there's a. Uh, Canadian serial killers, uh, the Ken and Barbie killers, yes, yes, um, yes. Paul Bernardo and Carla Malka. Mm-hmm. Um, but before he was a serial killer, he was a he was the Scarborough rapist. He was sort of like an escalating serial killer. So in the town that he lived before, he was a there was there was just like a, it was just he was a serial rapist, and it was a really dangerous time. Mm. And the police there responded to that by imposing a curfew for women. Oh my god! Yeah. <laughs> It's like the reverse. It's the reverse um, of that. So if we'd only had that Italian, they'd only had that Italian uh, cop in Canada. He's ahead of his time. Yeah, <laughs> really, really was ahead of now. Ahead of even <laughs> now. Yeah, exactly. Mm. On, on the topic of violence. Yeah. What did you guys think about the weird, the double sex scene, or rather, this kind of this oh, parallel? Yeah. Well, there's a, 
a sex scene and a, and a rape scene. And the sex scene, the love scene between Stefano and Francesca, Francesca. is like totally absurd. It it's is. totally cheesy. Mm. It, it's, it's, it's laughable. It's laughably unsexy. <laughs> She's wearing those unbelievably enormous... Really ill-fitting yeah. outfit. <laughs> I, was hoping, I was hoping I wouldn't have to mention that, but yeah. bring, it, bring it out now. It's, it's just yeah. it's very strange. And then and then she gets undressed underneath the sheet. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. And yeah. then she turns the lights off. And there's that, there's that kind of strange, cheesy synth music in the background mm. as well. And then mm. the other scene, of course, is that really quite terrifying. It's brutal. graphic. And... Yeah, it's a very alive scene. Mm. It's got nothing fake about it. Um, I just wondered if you noticed okay. that sort of doubling. I hadn't really, no. But because, that's really interesting. Because I mean, the, the doubling there sort of synchronises with the, the Stefano character and the Lydia character who carries out the rape, who's like a kind of classic Freudian sort of id, mm. unleashed character. He's got no inhibitions. He's deranged she's obviously dangerous yes. and he's actually he's like a child he's like a he's teenager like, as well yeah. yeah so and I wondered if you know there was oh, I mean, wow. there was something about him and Stefano as if these sort of two aspects of male sexuality mm-hmm. had been separated off into different characters mm. you know the cheesy you know, and they have this romantic dinner mm-hmm. and he reads like from the book of courtly love yeah it's, it's just it's too much it's too much yeah yeah i did i did it's find absurd. like all yeah all of that really strange and absurd but i didn't think it was um i can't help but yeah. think there's some artifice going on yeah. yeah but also but i mean but that is he is just like as a character he is just i'm not sure how to express this but just even in his like profession of coming and cleaning up other people's other people's you know artwork he's just sort of and of like living a little bit of a half-life, isn't he? Goes into everything without any kind of particularly enthusiasm or emotion. And so he he is this sort of, um, mm-hmm. this kind of alternative to the, like this these characters who are like living life in this extreme mm-hmm. way, but also producing this incredible work. And, and like in the Velvet Buzzsaw, you, mm-hmm. know, you have to wonder when the critic characters are unearthing the traumatic history yes. of their subjects, mm-hmm. you know, to what extent is it hinting at something that's totally repressed, disavowed in them, and that is precisely the reason why they come across as being utterly superficial, like morph, or a bit dead behind the eyeballs, mm-hmm. like Stefano. Yeah, yeah. As if there's something that they can't access. And that the process of investigating mm. the artist character is, is a trigger or will bring something out. Well, I think the process of investigating is always is always a process of um, deferring, uh, or um, is always kind of a process of blocking yourself from that. Um, I think that's always what that's always what the detective is. That's a very good point. In wow. defense, it's a defensive. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's mechanism. the. Yeah, yeah exactly. Absolutely. That's always that, and that's in in everything in detective fiction. I mean, that's it's in research too. In research, in know? in what we do, um, <laughs> but uh, and in you know in all detective novels, you know, detectives are also always kind of repressing some yeah, something, and the, so and it's the joy of because like because detective work is this this paradox of this because it's it's really joyful work like people you know people are like addicted to detective novels people are addicted to true crime i'm like i love yeah. like find you know in i watch a film and instead of just watching it and analyzing it i want to i would like to go into it and see more of the thing they're not showing me yeah me but too. there's but that's actually a terrible it's terrible to enjoy something that is really is revolving around kind of danger or death you know, so it's there is it's some mm. kind of way of being able to detach from horror and to kind of almost enjoy it in this sick way. Mm. Um, so I think that's why there are so many there are so many detectives in films because I don't know they're just I I I'm not exactly sure but I've always identified with that wow. so much and that's always, that's what the detective is for the detective is for kind of have you know being able to look at things without experiencing them 
I suppose. That's what detective work is for. And he's usually, or she, investigating death. So yeah. Yeah. it's always death and the detective. But there is this this strange thing that like murder mysteries are so much fun for us and it's they're they're so they're great and they're addictive and they keep making them and we all want and we all want to know in real life you know who killed John Bonnet Ramsey who called you know all of these and it must be some way for us to detach from the you know other there's no Mm. unless we had that figure of the that figure of the detective and that process of detective work we'd just all be terrified and traumatized all of the time yeah but we found some way of putting that in front of us so I think there's a reason why that's such a ubiquitous character, especially in horror films. Like the investigator is always that that person. Because yeah, it brings, I think, in the horror films, it brings close the idea of investigating something out there and investigating something in here mm. in your head. Yeah. And the two get confused. Yeah. With, with terrifying consequences. Yeah, I mean, Blue Velvet yeah. is yeah, like that, it's structured like that. Well, she literally says, I don't know if you're a detective or a pervert yeah. in Blue Velvet. It's like, she says it just out loud. Like in the That's first, a great line. Yeah. Yeah. There's actually a really great book, um, but it's called um, Over My Dead Body. Oh. And uh, Over Her Dead Body, maybe? No, Over Her Dead Body, I think. And it's about, um, mm-hmm. it's about the dead girl, basically, in... Um, uh, in cinema? In... in culture okay um not just cinema um, wow but there is there is a, a a chapter that she writes about her father's infatuation with detective novels and she kind of interprets interprets the detective as that like that yeah as someone who's using sort of other people's trauma as um and it's, it's maybe kind of an immoral thing of getting into excited by other people's yeah, trauma like getting off on getting off yeah yeah someone else Basically, and that's and that is, I would fully admit to that. You know, not in a not in a like a horrifying way, but it yeah, is, yeah, yeah. yeah. But yeah, it's um, it's enjoyable. Right. Yeah, it's really enjoyable, and he's yeah. enjoying it. Like it's yeah. like the only times that he really gets animated is like <laughs> that's right. around this. He's not actually that into the painting. He, you don't really see him working on the painting very much, but the only times he really gets animated, and maybe no, that's. I was left wondering what is he actually doing with that painting? Yeah, he's just scraping it a bit. Yeah, it like it's just it's just it's just a bit dirty. Like, yeah. um, but he yeah, you never see him. You never see him painting. Like he's he's got to replace like whole bits of it, mm. and you never see him painting. And then when he does get excited, it's that house. It's this scary house. It's not really. Maybe it's not about the paintings on it. He's actually more into he's more into the death mm-hmm. than he is into the art. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, actually, that makes me think of even Freud. He said, uh, he, he didn't he sort of compare the analyst's position or function as with that of the de- detective? Yeah, absolutely. I you mean, know? Well, of course, that raises the question of something that Lacan was perpetually interested in, the desire exactly. of the analyst. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Um, it's a tricky question, isn't it? It's a very difficult topic mm, yeah and it's one that people quite rightly or it's a, a question criticism attack that one quite rightly presents to analysts and therapists is are you getting off on my story <laughs> yeah 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 but in the same way i think i would even uh add to that kind of investigative approach of the analyst and the detective that of the film spectator Mm-hmm. You know, that position of viewing and taking in all this information and trying to make sense of, of this and construct your own narrative around it and find an, information and detect meaning. Yeah. You know, it's always happening, whether we, whether it's like a, a an art film or like a popcorn movie or something, mm-hmm. you know. Well, I suppose the difference in kind of... Uh, <laughs> questioning the sort of morality of that is yeah. that with film with film you know it's only a movie mm. so it's okay for you to be doing that is it, but whether, whether it's yeah. like you're actually investigating a murder or like yeah. looking after a patient it's you know do you still have that attitude yeah. of it's only a, it's only a story and when it's not i suppose absolutely yeah Oh, that, got, that, that was, was a good, fascinating place. Yeah, that we, was... we didn't even talk about the snails in the fridge. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> what was with it? Let's get onto the snails in the fridge. Well, I just thought it was a crazy town because people were talking about boiling rats and eating, like, the most random food. So what was going on with those snails? But, but that was the teacher, the... Uh, yeah. What's her name? Francesca. Francesca. That was her doing. That was her doing. Was really her doing. <laughs> 
She was so... She's such a strange character as yeah. well. Like, she's such a, like this kind of sleepy... She's always asleep. You know, he goes, he goes and knocks on her door and she's like, I was asleep. I'm going to have dinner. And it's just, what order are you doing things in? And then they have an argument and she just like goes next door and goes to sleep. And, so she's, and then he's like, and he's always telling her to go to sleep. She's like, can I come with you? And he's like, no, you rest. And like, she, no, she doesn't need any more sleep. She's always asleep. Is it just like, maybe just the writer just didn't know what to do with, the, with like, her? It's so. a classic Jana trope, isn't it? It's the boyfriend says to the girlfriend, just got to pop out for a couple of yeah. hours. Just make sure, you know, you lock, keep the door locked. Yeah. You know, as if a locked door is going to, like, <laughs> stop a leather-gloved yeah. lunatic <laughs> from getting in and getting his wicked way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that true. happens, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was that sort of that same Wicker Man thing of, like, we're getting the train, we're going to be, we're going to yeah, go, yeah. and then it doesn't happen. <laughs> But yeah, but it's his fault it doesn't happen because yeah. he's you know gets in a gets in a taxi and then the next thing you know he's having a drink with someone and talking about these murders. Um, yeah. Oh, well, um, this has been such a fun conversation. Yeah. Thank you so much, Alex, for coming on the yeah, podcast. The You're fun. welcome. Will and you we'll, come back? That was really fun. I will. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. We're gonna we're gonna make sure we get you back. We've got some ideas in the pipeline. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for listening and send us your feedback. Oh, yeah. Uh, rate and review us, follow us on follow social media. Us. Um, yeah. And for all the people out there who are fin-doms, please give us very generously. We want big donations. That's not what fin-doms do. <laughs> We'd have to give money to fin-doms. Really? Yeah. That's, yeah. Oh, no. Okay. I completely retract that. <laughs> I don't want to give you any money. <laughs> Um, we're yeah. the fin doms just, actually. just give them some money please give us some give money, some money. <laughs> let's just ask yeah, please we'll can just, we have some money we'll kindly ask you please <laughs> to donate alright well thanks so that, was, that was the most shambolic ending we've ever done <laughs> <laughs> bye bye